for the ministry uh, missions moment this morning, I just wanted to share, you, share with you about the ECOFs. Now, some of you don't know the ECOFs are missionaries to Afghanistan. They're, bo- they're medical, uh, they're both doctors, and uh, they're involved in their medical missions there in Afghanistan, using that as a ministry to uh, share the gospel. Uh, they're not church planters, per se. Uh, they are sowing the seed. They have seen converts. They've been involved in discipleship. Uh, but it's all very hush-hush, <coughs> uh, so to speak. Uh, a couple times their lives have been in danger. But nonetheless, the Lord uh, led them from Haiti, where they served for many years, to Afghanistan. Oh, they've been there, I think, almost 10 years now. But anyway, I wanted to share with you the last letter. I mentioned this with our prayer team as we met on Wednesday. Uh, we just returned from a meeting with our company. Uh, the, the language you'll notice is coded, and I'll try to translate that. Uh, they have to be very careful of what they communicate uh, back to the states. We just returned from a meeting with our company, in parenthesis, our colleagues who have a similar work focus as we do. Brainstorming is on the agenda as together we sought the Lord for ways to more effectively make disciples, he used the word just these, disciples in the world's least reached marketplaces. Future plans to how we can develop and oversee this work were extensively discussed. These meetings were followed by a conference with leaders from other agencies also working with this same focus. We rejoiced as we interacted with many of those whose talents have been surrendered to him in his great task. As we heard of unprecedented opportunities and the amazing things he is doing, we're extremely encouraged and challenged. We just have 15 days left in Afghanistan before leaving on home assignment. We want to make all these moments count. Would you lift up our schedules, meetings, and goodbyes? Paul especially has a lot to finish up as he transitions with those taking on his leadership roles. At the same time, we don't want... we don't want all the work and busyness to distract us from what, we, what he wants us to do. Um, they're leaving the field. Uh, Paul is not just a gifted doctor, but he's also a gifted administrator. And the agency that he works for is bringing him home to the U.S. to act as a field administrator and uh, communicate with churches, raising funds, etc. And so uh, they asked that we would pray for them as they leave the field, and they already have individuals who are taking their place. Uh, that's already in, happening uh, there in that, in that way. Uh, he was very much involved in leadership in Afghanistan for the placement of the works and encouragement of the works and ministering to those who were working and things. So let's pray for Paul and Christina as they transition back home now to work in the, in the home office here in the U.S. Father, we are, we are so thankful, as always, at the amazing missionaries that you allowed us to partner with, the incredible work that is being accomplished by them, their, their willingness to surrender to wherever and whenever. We thank you for the gifts and the talents that you've given them to allow them to be used by you wherever you place them. We thank you specifically, Lord, for the ECOS. We thank you for safety that you have given them and protection you've placed upon them. Uh, but also, Lord, as you take this new chapter in their life as they leave specifically the field and come to the home office, I pray that they will find it just as rewarding, just as impacting, and, and uh, that as they minister not only to many of this, the missionaries that are a part of their agency, but also to many churches and individuals uh, in the United States as they seek to recruit 
and allow the Lord working uh, on lives for their surrender, whether it be to Afghanistan, to the ministry, or to a specific mission field. Again, we thank you for faithfulness. We thank you for protection. We, again, we never want to take for granted uh, the care that you have over us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, for scripture reading this morning, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, please. Romans chapter 12. As we uh, continue our road trip through Romans, uh, we're here to Romans chapter 12. Uh, we're going to spend, uh, we're going we're gonna to take the bus and park for a while in Romans chapter 12. It's rich, it's deep and wide, as so to speak. Uh, I'm going to read uh, so you get a feel for the whole chapter. I know it's a lengthy such, but I'm going to read the whole chapter. We're only going to look at verse 1 today, but I want you to get a sense of the whole chapter as he transitions from doctrine, chapters 111, to duty in chapters 12 through uh, 16. Okay, chapter 12, verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James Version. If you're following along in a different version, that's okay. Verse 1, I beseech you, you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and, and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor that which is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affection to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinions. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to, to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And Lord, may you continue to add your blessings to your word, as it is the Spirit of God through the word of God that brings lasting change. I pray as we seek to expound, to extract the meanings, 
meaning from the scripture as we seek through the Spirit of God to apply to our lives that not only will we be attentive, but also that we will be changed in Christ's name. Verse 12. Uh, as is characteristic of Paul in his epistles or in his letters that he's written, and I mentioned this last week, he always starts with doctrine and he follows by duty. Uh, there's some, some, some things that I think are significant about that. First of all, <clears throat> it is important what you believe. You have, you have to have a foundation to build upon. And so whether it's Colossians or Philippians or Ephesians or Romans, he, he does that purposefully. It is important what you believe. This, this, there isn't a, uh, uh, there's smorgasbord theology, there's the uh, armchair theologian, there's the computer theologian now, which is any conglomerate of things you might get that you'll be confused. Well, get back to the text. Get back to Romans. Get back to Ephesians and Colossians. And you'll see what to believe, the doctrine. And then he follows up, like he does here in Romans, in chapters 12 through 16, the duty. In other words, the doctrine is what you believe. The duty is how you behave. The doctrine is is educational. The duty is the application of that education. In fact, we can say it this way, and, you, and I've said it, and you've heard this before. You want to find out what a person really believes? Watch how they behave. So you have doctrine. You have the principle set forth. And now we get into chapters 12 to 16. We have how to put that into practice. How to put those truths, those doctrinal foundation. We can talk about the condemnation of man, the justification of man, the sanctification of man, the glorification of man. We've discussed the foreknowledge of God, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. We've talked about the past, present, and future dealings with Israel by God. We saw the examples there of the sovereignty of God as well as the moral responsibility of man. Now let's take that and put it into duty. And so we begin then in chapter 12. One author put it this way. If the first 11 chapters of Romans, I'm sorry, in the first 11 chapters of Romans, it is possible for all of us to say, yeah, I believe all that stuff. If you want to talk about justification by faith, condemnation, original sin, depravity of man, eternal hell and heaven, forgiveness by grace, God's wrath, election, evangelism, we can talk. I'm I'm right there with you. I agree. I'm all over it. And then he continues, But now, in chapter 12, Paul does nothing less than define authentic Christianity. It is a chapter that tests us, not at a safe distance, but up close. It's one of those chapters that looks at our character, not through a telescope, but through a microscope. It's not for the faint of heart. It is not the chapter of choice for the average Sunday go to meet in Christian. This is my point. Chapter 12 is where the rubber meets the road. It's where we discover what it means to walk the talk. It's plain and simple. Chapter 12 is a reality check. Are you ready for that? I entitled the message this morning, Let's Get Real. What, 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 
What really makes you tick? What really turns your crank? What are you really like as we go from doctrine to duty? It's a reality check. An airline pilot flying over the southeastern U.S. called the local tower and said, we're passing over at 35,000, give us a time check. The tower said, what airline are you? What difference does that make? I just want the time, replied the pilot. The tower said, or responded, oh, it makes a lot of difference. If you're a Transworld airline or Pan Am, it's 1600. If you're United or Delta, it's four o'clock. If you're Southern Airways, the little hand is on the four and the big hand is on the 12. If you are Skyway Airlines, it's Thursday. I realize that's humorous, but we, we need a reality check. Sometimes we're flying up here at 35,000 feet. We're at cruising speed. Yeah, we can talk about doctrine, and we're all, we're all together on that. But what's the reality check? Is it 1600 for you, or is it Thursday? And in doing so, let's get real in our relationship to God. Again, I think it's significant. The first thing he deals with, gets out of doctrine, jumps into chapter 12, and what's the first thing he deals with? What is your relationship with God? I, I'd rather talk about doctrine, Pastor. I'd rather argue about doctrine. I don't want to talk about living. I don't want to talk about practice. And of all things, I don't want to talk about my relationship with God. That's rather personal. That's why we've got to get real. Let's be real about our relationship with God. The first thing, there's, there's, three, there's three things in this chapter I want to look at, or these, this is just this verse I want to look at. I'll start with, sorry, start with this. Notice, first of all, the urgent invitation. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, I beseech is, is urge to invite to encourage, to challenge, to plead. I plead with you, therefore. Four times therefore is used in this book, and, and some even outline the book through those therefores. They are a conclusion or consequence of what has come before. For instance, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we have the therefore of condemnation. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for the law is the knowledge of sin. That's the therefore of condemnation. In other words, as you look back in chapter 1 and 2, you see the sinfulness of man, the therefore of condemnation. Then in chapter 1, you have the therefore of justification. And that looks back in chapter 4 specifically. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, therefore having been justified by faith. The therefore of condemnation, major section, the therefore of justification, major section, discussion in our book. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, you have the therefore of assurance, which looks back in chapter 6 and 7. Remember chapter 6 and 7? Chapter 6 talks about submitting yourself, surrendering yourself to be instruments of righteousness. Chapter 7, he talks about why do I do the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do I don't do? Why is this, this conflict going on within me? Well, that's a sin principle. So then we come to chapter 8, and he says, therefore, of assurance. There is now therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. And so we come to the fourth therefore. 
here in chapter 12, verse 1. This is the therefore of consecration. Looking back, not on chapter 11, but all of what has preceded, chapters 1 through 11, therefore, because of all that has happened before, in fact, he'll make a reference here, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. We'll see the, what, what mercies of God. Well, I'll talk about that. But he's looking back on the chapters 1 to 11, therefore, all of this we've talked about, condemnation, justification, assurance, therefore. The term, therefore, of consecration. All that we've learned about God, now here's how you should live. And then he uses the word brethren. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. This brethren is not the brethren used in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, brethren, my countrymen. This brethren is a term of endearment, as it is in 9.1, but it's specifically in reference to those who are in Christ. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, those who are brothers in Christ. So, the urgent invitation, I plead with you. Here, this is key. It's not a command. He could command us, but yet we've already learned there is a moral responsibility man or a human responsibility man, and this is where this really comes into play, that we are to consecrate ourselves to him. We are to dedicate ourselves to him. What is your relationship with God? We're not talking to the unsaved this morning. We're talking to you who know Christ as your personal Savior. You know if you died right now, you got to heaven, and God said, why should I let you in? And you'd be able to respond, I have repented for my sins and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. If you're a Christian, this is written to you and I. What is your daily living relationship with God right now? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I plead with you, I beg with you, I want to encourage you, I invite you. Put, your, put yourself under the microscope. Take a good, hard look. Let's get real. The second thing I want you to notice there in verse 1, the foundational principle of our relationship to God, by the mercies of God. And notice it's plural. Not the mercy of God, but the mercies of God. Mercy, by definition, is simply this. When God withholds what we deserve. God withholds what we deserve. Well, what do we deserve? Well, according to chapters 1 to 11, we deserve to die and go to hell. We deserve to be condemned. It's part of our DNA. Without the intervention, the interference the intentional activity of God, we would still be in that state. A mother once approached Napoleon seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman said, it would not be mercy if he deserved it, and mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, I will have mercy, and he spared the woman's son. He withheld what he deserved. He deserved justice, but Napoleon extended mercy. That's what God has done to us. Let me give you a few examples from Romans. We don't deserve grace and peace, Romans chapter 1, verse 7. We don't deserve the power of the gospel to save, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. We don't deserve the kindness and long-suffering of God toward us, Romans 2, verse 4. We don't deserve 
the righteousness of God. Romans 3, verse 21 and 22. We don't, forget, we don't deserve forgiveness. Romans chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. We don't deserve hope. Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We don't deserve the love of God poured out in our hearts. Romans 5, 5. We don't deserve the Holy Spirit. Again, in Romans 5, 5. We don't deserve justification by the blood of Christ. Romans 5, 9. We don't deserve salvation from the wrath of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We don't deserve reconciliation with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. We don't deserve the gift of eternal life. Romans 6, 23. We don't deserve freedom to bear fruit for God. Romans 7, verse 4. We don't deserve the assurance of security, of eternal security in our salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39. We don't deserve the good news of the gospel. Romans 10, 17. Pastor, can you go over those again? Because I didn't get them all down. I didn't expect it to, but I wanted to overwhelm you with the fact of the mercies of God. That's just in the book of Romans that he's extended to us. God has given us everything we need to build a meaningful, lasting relationship with God. Let's get real. The urgent invitation and the foundational principle. Let's go to the third one. Spend most of our time here. The distinctive marks of our relationship with God. When we talk about distinctives, we're talking about the qualities or characteristics that makes a person different from another person. Uh, Different in a way that is easy to identify, to notice. So that's why I said these are the distinctive marks of our relationship with God. I'm continuing on with the rest of the verse. It says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. So what's the first distinctive mark? It's personal. Your standing on my shoulders cannot make you taller. Your standing on my shoulders will not make you closer to God. My point is this. You can't live on somebody else's spirituality any more than I can live on your spirituality. It's you. It's personal. You present yourselves. In fact, in, chapter, in the first phrase of chapter 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. He's talking to, you, he's talking to us collectively, but he's talking to you, but this is personal. So the first distinguishing or distinctive mark that we see is it is personal. The second distinctive mark It's voluntary. You present. That is to present, that is to surrender my wants, desires, and will. I don't know about wants, but maybe desire and will, I can handle that. You see, we have a tendency to compartmentalize what we surrender and what we don't surrender. To surrender all my wants, desires, and will. To yield or submit to place oneself under another's authority. None of us like that. To offer with no strings attached. I will, but. To hand over and hands off. 
See, he's my Savior and my Lord. He's my Savior and my Master. To hand over and take the hands off. We want to manipulate. We want to control. You present. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 tells the instructions for bringing a sacrifice. Listen closely. He said, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. This offering is a burnt sacrifice, or burnt offering. Now, a burnt offering, which uh, Sanford Mills, a Hebrew, looks, a Hebrew Christian, looks at the Book of Romans. He believes this is a reference, when he talks, gets to the living sacrifice, that this is a reference to a burnt offering. The notable feature about a burnt offering, it was totally consumed on the altar. There was nothing taken off for a fellowship meal. There was, it was totally consumed on the altar. It was a burnt offering. Speak to the children of Israel. If his offering is a burnt offering of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will. You present. You surrender. You submit. Let him offer it his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. It's voluntary, of their own free will. It was commanded in the sense that this needed to be done, but he wasn't forcing them to do it. You present, you surrender. Is that a distinctive mark <clears throat> of your relationship to God? Bruce Larson, in a book, Believing and Belonging, wrote this. He tells a story how he helped people struggling to surrender their lives to Christ. <clears throat> the message was getting a little dry, I'm sorry. <clears throat> For many years I worked in New York City, counseled at my office, any number of people who were wrestling with this yes or no decision. Often I would suggest they take a walk with me from my office down to the RCA building on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas. I think many of you have seen that in pictures, if not in real life. It's a beautifully proportioned man who, with all his muscles straining, is holding the world on his shoulders. There he is, the most powerfully built man in the world, and he can barely stand up under the burden. Now that's one way to live, I would point out to my companion trying to carry the world on your shoulders. But now come across the street with me. On the other side of the Fifth Avenue is St. Patrick's Cathedral. And there behind the high altar is the little shrine of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old. And with no effort, he's holding the world in one hand. My point was illustrated graphically. We have a choice. We can carry the world on our shoulders, or we can say, I give up, Lord. Here's my life. I give you my world. I give you my whole world. What is your relationship with God? It's voluntary. Present. Thirdly, we notice it is complete. You present your bodies. Literally, this is meant to present your entire being. One translates and reads, present all your faculties. Another reads, present your whole being to God. In other words, Paul is thinking more, of skin and, more than skin and bones. He's 
has in mind the fact that we live in our bodies and our bodies represent everything we have to offer. Inside the body is our mind. Have you yielded it to God? Your intellect, your emotions, plans, your will, dreams, thoughts, desires, hopes, frustrations, disappointments, longings, everything, as well as our attitudes. It's complete. You present your bodies. The text implies that you can refuse to yield. But you might think that surely God can command us, which he could. But would you really want to force surrender? Would you really want to force yield? The matter of Christian conduct, our personal growing relationship with God, is our responsibility. It rests on you. In the Old Testament, the believer could choose to bring a sacrifice to God, Leviticus 1.3. But in the New Testament, the believer is to choose to be the sacrifice. That you choose to be the sacrifice. What drives people like Ekhoffs to minister in a dangerous country like Afghanistan? Because they've surrendered. What drives people to the ministry and missions? What drives individuals who are in a secular field of work to boldly proclaim Christ, to boldly live Christ? Because they've surrendered. Fourthly, it's costly. It's a living sacrifice. Offerings, typically on the altar, were not breathing. They were dead. They had been brought to the tabernacle. They had been brought to the priest at the temple. The, the offerer is the one usually, normally, that took the life of the beast, laid his hands on it as representative of their sin, took the knife and slit its throat. And I know this is gory, but the, the point is the sacrifice was dead. God does not want, the point here is though, that God does not want a lifeless offering. He wants a living offering. It speaks of absolute, unconditional surrender. The picture is of, of uh, Abraham when he offers Isaac on that altar. It never records that Isaac fought against him, wrestled against him. He willingly submitted to Abraham, sacrificing him on the altar. He was a living sacrifice because Abraham didn't kill him before he put him on the altar and God intervened. It's a reference to perpetual nature of our offering to God. It's the kind of offering that moves us beyond salvation. It goes beyond Sunday morning to Monday morning and Tuesday morning and Thursday and Wednesday and Friday and Saturday. It moves beyond Sunday. No offering was bought, brought with the intent to only give an ear, a leg, or just the tongue. It was all or nothing. It's costly. And I, I, I just, I can tell you up front, you surrender your life to God. There's going to be all kinds of temptations that suddenly came to you that you've never been tempted with before. There's going to come all kinds of obstacles that you're going to have to overcome that you never were confronted with before. But you see, it's all or nothing. It's not part and parcel. It's costly. I love this story. I've used it before. The story of the farmer. He went into the farmyard 
to the barn. He asked his animals to contribute something for his breakfast. The hen clucked of what a great idea that was and produced two fresh eggs. The cow thought it was great and said he'd bring and provide the milk. Then they all looked at the reluctant pig. Well, aren't you going to give something for our dear farmer? The pig responded, that's easy for you to say. For you, it's a minor contribution. For me, it's a total commitment. See, we don't mind temporary contributions that we can replace, do we? But it's a lot different when the contribution is presented to God, something that he may not give back. When it is to yield something to him that he may never again let us control. When we offer our offering to him that he may never replace. Elva J. McLean put it this way, we might die in a moment of time, but to live for God will be a lifetime. Or Howard Hendricks, as he mentioned, the trouble with being alive is that we constantly want to crawl down off the altar. It's costly. Notice, fifthly, it's holy. A living sacrifice, holy. Like the Old Testament sacrifice, it's supposed to be free from blemish, free from defect or contamination. It's to be holy. We, as that living sacrifice, are to be holy. We're to be separated from moral impurity unto that which will serve as a sacred service. I like this definition. Holiness does not consist in mystic speculation, enthusiastic fervor, or uncommended self-denial. It consists in this. Loving what God loves and hating what God hates. A distinctive mark of, of our relationship with God is that we are a living sacrifice holy, that we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. Is that, is that a distinctive mark of your relationship with God? Could we identify you as a Christian even just by that mark itself? A living sacrifice is holy. Notice the sixth thing. It's pleasing. A living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God. This is a compound word. It's speaking of something that is well approved, uh, eminently, uh, it's, it's satisfactory, I'm sorry, eminently satisfactory, extraordinarily pleasing. It's that which is attractive and excites the pleasure of a holy and loving God. It's the same word used in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5, when it says of Enoch, By faith Enoch was taken away so he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Do you please God? Are you pleasing God? Are you even thinking about pleasing God? As you get to know and understand the word of God, as you get to understand chapters 1 to 11, are you applying that in your life to please God because of his incredible mercies that he extended to us even though we didn't deserve it? It's pleasing. The seventh thing is it is intentional, which is your, which is your reasonable service. Reasonable. 
Word, the word is logikos, which we get our English word logic. It's reasonable. It's rational. It's an informed decision. It's something that we would apply uh, gathering the facts and evaluating them. It's a calm, reasoned decision-making process. It's not an emotional response. It's not a knee-jerk decision. Considering the mercies of God, the holiness of God, the desire to please God, the challenge of living for God, what's the hesitation? Why are you holding back? It's logical. It's reasonable. The word there, service, can be also used as the word worship. It's an all-consuming relationship of want to, not have to. It's the quickening of our conscience by the holiness of God. It is feeding our mind with the truth of God. It is purging our imagination by the beauty of God. It is opening our heart to the love of God. It is devoting our will to the purpose of God. It is to be theocentric. It is to be God-centered. Thomas Schreiner concludes in response to a reasonable service. He said, it is to yield one's life to God in the concrete reality of everyday existence. Let me say that again. It's to yield one's life to God in the concrete reality of everyday existence. Let's get real. Where does the rubber meet the road? What is the reality of your personal relationship with God? During the American Revolution, a man in civilian clothes rode past a group of soldiers repairing a small defensive barrier. Their leader was shouting instructions but making no attempt to help them. Asked why by the rider, he retorted with great dignity, Sir, I am a corporal. Then the stranger apologized, dismounted, and proceeded to help the exhausted soldiers. The job done. He turned to the corporal and said, Mr. Corporal, next time you have a job like this and not enough men to do it, go to your commander-in-chief and I'll come and help you again. It was none other than George Washington. Are you, are you in that place in your life that doesn't matter of recognition? It doesn't matter of getting your hands dirty? It doesn't matter what people may say? That you would surrender your life to God? To walk with Him on a daily basis in a personal way? Allowing Him to work on you and in you and through you? Do these marks are they distinctive of your life? Which brings me to the last question. How would you describe your relationship with God? If you could do it in 15 words or less, or even in one word, how would you describe your relationship with God? Get real. Make it personal. Not what other people think, but you know what God knows. Would it be casual? You could take it or leave it. Whenever, wherever, if it's convenient. Careless. This would be indifferent, neglectful. Treat God like leaving your baby in a 120-degree car. You're careless, foolish, or cautious, 
You're careful to be seen doing all the right things. Outward appearance is very important to you. Or are you truly committed, handing over and hands off? Because, see, he's not only my Savior, but he's my Master. He's my Lord. How would you describe your relationship with God? Where's your walk? Casual, careless, cautious, 